Welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Washington versus Du Bois, the fight for African American identity. The date, February 2021, and my name, Bell Avis. Quote, What in the name of reason does this nation expect of a people poorly trained and hard-pressed in severe economic competition without political rights and with ludicrously inadequate common school facilities? What can it expect but crime and listlessness offset here and there by the dogged struggles of the fortunate and more determined who are themselves buoyed by the hope that in due time the country will come to its senses? Unquote. W.E.B. Du Bois. Quote, there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. Unquote. Booker T. Washington. I have begun with these two quotes from historically prominent African Americans, W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. This piece is not just to pee onto the once necessary but now sometimes wasteful Black History Month, but rather to illustrate just how these two men captured the ethos of opinion that is still very much with us today. Assume for a moment that these men did not live a hundred years ago, but rather were writing blogs and Twitter posts in 2021. Aside from the descriptors in the Washington quote, simply sub out the terms colored and Negroes for African Americans, they would be highly pertinent today. Political debates have long been a feature of the American landscape. From the inception of the Republic, there were Hamiltonians favoring a tighter union based on merchants and commerce. And these Hamiltonians were pitted against the Jeffersonian ideal of a loose union based on agriculture. The populist Jacksonians arrayed against what today would be termed the elite as embodied by the likes of John Quincy Adams. The first 80 years of American history had the abolitionist North versus the South, which was dependent on slave labor, exemplified in the actual physical debates of Lincoln versus Douglas. Even in the so-called Gilded Age, there were soft money types versus hard money advocates supporting the gold standard. We can see from our 2021 perch some winners and losers. Hamilton's vision is the one that prevailed mostly with the industrialization of the nation after 1865. We know who won on the slavery question, thank God, and though the hard money advocates won in the 1890s, the champions of soft money eventually emerged victorious with Richard Nixon removing the United States from the gold standard in 1973. But one debate began around 1865 and has now run through the past 170 years of our history, with first one side and then the other prevailing. Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois were arguably the most prominent African Americans in the late so-called Gilded Age and into the Progressive Era. For Washington, who lived from 1856 to 1915, slavery was not something he read in history books, but actually understood firsthand. Du Bois was born 
just three years after the passage of the 13th Amendment and lived long enough to see Brown versus Board of Education's advent and the beginning of the 1960 civil rights movements. As noted in PBS in 1998, quote, At the time, the Washington-Du Bois dispute polarized African-American leaders into two wings, the conservative supporters of Washington and his radical critics. The Du Bois philosophy of agitation and protest for civil rights flowed directly into the civil rights movement, which began to develop in the 1950s and exploded in the 1960s. Booker T. Washington today is associated, perhaps unfairly, with the self-help, colorblind Republican Clarence Thomas and Thomas Sowell wing of the black community and its leaders. The Nation of Islam and Malone Karanga's Afrocentrism derived from this strand of Booker T's philosophy. In Washington's seminal autobiography, Up From Slavery, he espouses his worldview. Quote, I have begun everything, everything, with the idea that I could succeed, and I never had much patience with the multitudes of people who are always ready to explain why one cannot succeed. Unquote. Up From Slavery is Washington's 1901 autobiography. The book describes Washington's personal experience of having to work to rise from the position of a slave child during the Civil War to the difficulties and obstacles he overcame to get an education at the new Hampton Institute. To his work establishing vocational schools, most notably the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, to help black people and other disadvantaged minorities learn useful, marketable skills, and work to pull themselves as a race up by the bootstraps. Washington also had a view of governmental interventionism that could be part of a stump speech by pretty much any 21st century conservative. Quote, Among a large class, there seemed to be a dependence upon the government for every conceivable thing. The members of this class had little ambition to create a position for themselves, but wanted the federal officials to create one. How many times I wish then, and have often wished since, that by some power of magic, I might remove the great bulk of these people into the country districts and plant them upon the soil, upon the solid and never deceptive foundation of Mother Nature. Where all nations and races that have ever succeeded have gotten their start, a start that at first may be slow and toilsome, but one that is nevertheless real. Unquote. As expressed in an 1895 Atlanta speech to a mostly white audience, Washington expressed support for segregation, assuming that the opportunities were equal. This speech was seized upon by Du Bois as a condemnation of Jim Crow and helped inspire his Niagara movement as described by History.com. Quote, the Niagara Movement was a civil rights group founded in 1905 near Niagara Falls. Scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois gathered with his supporters on the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls to form an organization dedicated to social and political change for African Americans. Its list of demands included an end to segregation and discrimination in unions, the courts, public accommodations, and equality of economic and educational opportunity. Although the Niagara Movement had little impact on legislative action, its ideals led to the National Association for the Advancement of Color People forming in 1909. The founding of the NAACP was a significant step on the road to black militancy, 
Its beginnings may be traced to the publication in 1903 of The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black American to earn a doctorate from Harvard, unquote. Now that book included an essay of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others, which attacked Washington's Atlanta compromise, that's a term that was inserted later, speech, and accused him of abandoning the fight for black political rights and accepting segregation in exchange for economic gains. Now that Atlanta speech is very important when we look at the history of Booker T. Washington, and especially when we align it next to that of W.E.B. Du Bois. The Atlanta speech was one of those speeches in which only part of the context is heard. And one of the reasons that only part of that context is heard is is the better to destroy the image of Booker T. Washington, the better to debase some of his viewpoints by trying to attack him with the odium of segregation and attached to his memory that of Jim Crow. But as is often the case with selective history, the full import of Washington's Atlanta speech was missed. So here's a quote. In all things purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet, yet one as the hand, your aim is in all things essential to mutual progress. Unquote. Within the context of the Atlanta speech, the separate as fingers is always cited, and yet very rarely is that second passage. Yet one, as the hand your aim is in all things essential to mutual progress. Try being a surgeon or a writer while missing a finger. Washington was not sugarcoating the racial differences. He was not espousing a one human view of the world, nor would a man of such intelligence do so because in that era, as in this one, it is not to be dismissed. But saying that we are fingers on one hand implies not just integration, but equality. And still, that implication that there wouldn't be two Americas, he wasn't talking about two different hands, and he definitely wasn't talking about two different bodies. Rather, he was talking about two different identities, a black one and a white one, existing in a synergistic type of world. That is always the part of that speech of the Atlanta speech that is always missed. And the reason is it is, is that it is purposely left out so that all the other things that Booker T. Washington believed in, such as the power of individual responsibility, such as doing without government invention, and such as resisting the power of race hucksterism, all of this is, is tried to tie back to that speech in order to taint these very important viewpoints. As the founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Color People in 1909, the organization itself features this descriptor of Du Bois. Quote, William Edward Burgart Du Bois, February 23rd, 1868 to August 27th, 1963, was an American civil rights activist, leader, pan-Africanist, sociologist, educator, historian, writer, editor, poet, and scholar. He was born and raised in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He had children with his wife, Nina Gomer. He became a naturalized citizen of Ghana in 1963 at the age of 95, the year of his death. In 1905, Du Bois was a founder and general secretary of the Niagara Movement, an African-American protest group of scholars 
and professionals. Du Bois founded and edited The Moon in 1906 and The Horizon, which lasted from 1907 to 1910 as organs for the Niagara Movement. Unquote. Now, from 1910 to 1934, Du Bois served as the NAACP Director of Publicity and Research, a member of the Board of Directors and founder and editor of The Crisis, its monthly magazine. In The Crisis, Du Bois directed a constant stream of agitation, often bitter and sarcastic, at white Americans while serving as a source of information and pride to African Americans. The magazine always published young African American writers. Racial protests during the decade following World War I focused on securing anti-lynching legislation. One of the things that I'll talk a little bit about later is, is that lynching especially during the Wilson administration, reached all-time highs. During this period, the NAACP was the leading protest organization and Du Bois, more than likely, its leading figure. Later, Du Bois would famously leave the organization he founded. Quote, Du Bois, concerned that his position as an editor would be eliminated, resigned his job at the crisis and accepted an academic position at Atlanta University in early 1933. The NAACP's rift grew larger in 1934 when Du Bois reversed his stance on segregation, stating that separate but equal was an acceptable goal for African Americans. The NAACP leadership was stunned and asked Du Bois to retract his statement, but he refused, and the dispute led to Du Bois's resignation from the organization. Du Bois was the author of over 25 books, not just on African Americans' experience, but also on colonialism in Africa itself. It is also not only organizations such as Black Lives Matters that can claim lineage from his work, but the current colonial studies prevalent on campuses today that find their roots in Du Bois. In an article for Biography.com, David Blatty states, quote, Washington believed that it was economic independence and the ability to show themselves as productive members of society that would eventually lead black people to true equality. Washington's conciliatory approach to civil rights had made him adept at fundraising for his Tuskegee Institute as well as for other black organizations. It had also endeared him to the white establishment, including President Theodore Roosevelt, who often consulted him regarding all matters about black people, unquote. Blatty also provides a view of Du Bois, quote, Du Bois maintained that education and civil rights were the only way to equality and that conceding their pursuit would simply serve to reinforce the notion of black people as second-class citizens. Following a series of articles in which the two men expounded on their ideologies, their differences finally came to a head when, in 1903, Du Bois published a work called The Souls of Black Folks, in which he directly criticized Washington and his approach and went on to demand full civil rights for black people. More than just deepening the personal dislike between Washington and Du Bois, this ideological rift would in time prove to be one of the most important in the history of the struggle for civil rights. Believing that political action and agitation was the only way to achieve equality, in 1905, Du Bois and other black intellectuals founded the political group called Niagara, which was dedicated to the cause, Unquote. What also helped Du Bois's cause was that great progressive Woodrow Wilson. Operating on his latent racism, Wilson, 
upon being elected in 1912, began to segregate the federal bureaucracy, undercutting support for Washington and providing the impetus for Du Bois's views. Also assisting that was is the inherent lynching going on in the South during the Woodrow Wilson administration. And it should be noted that at the height of the Wilson administration, there were over 50 lynchings a year. But by the time of Republican Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge's policies had lowered that to seven. As noted, the views of both Washington and especially Du Bois would later gain purchase in the civil rights movement but not in a completely singular fashion. Like Washington, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed in economic opportunity. King was also an integrationist, as expressed in 1963, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote. One of Washington's quotes was, quote, character is power. Unquote, providing the genesis for much of what King was trying to convey. Yet even before that, in St. Louis in 1961, King expressed a sentiment that was very Washingtonian. Quote, Do you know that Negroes are 10% of the population of St. Louis and are responsible for 58% of its crimes? We've got to face that, and we've got to do something about our moral standards. We know that there are many things wrong in the white world, but there are many things wrong in the black world too. We can't keep blaming the white man. There are things we must do for ourselves. Unquote. Yet, King's views also contained elements of the socialist Du Bois. Quote, there are two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation, and in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture, education for their minds, and freedom and dignity for their spirits. Tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily searching for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infected, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Unquote. Whereas King expressed both sides of the argument and was far more nuanced, the Black Panthers' more militant civil rights movement was also more singular. Stokely Carmichael, one of the Black Panthers' leaders, took Du Bois's work to a greater degree forging the position that is now held today by powerful intelligentsia such as Ibram X. Kendi and the now-dominant Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, Racism is both overt and covert. It takes two closely related forms, individual whites acting against individual blacks and acts by the total white community against the black community. We call these individual racism and institutional racism, unquote. Today, Ibram X. Kendi and several others in the anti-racist movement would call this systemic racism. The worldviews of Du Bois of Washington have informed popular culture. 
In the 1970s, the most prominent situation comedy centered on black families was Norman Lear's Good Times, a story of struggle in which the Evans family was housed in Chicago projects and could barely make a living. The Evans, especially in the form of youngest son Michael, were advocates in the Du Bois mold. Just a decade later, NBC provided The Cosby Show. The Huxtables were led by a prominent lawyer and doctor who resided in a New York City brownstone that would have cost millions of dollars. Airing at the same time as The Cosby Show was Roseanne, a story of a working-class white family that, in terms of class, would have identified far more with the Evans than with the Huxtables. Now, in 2020, there is Blackish, a show that has run for seven years and tries to bridge the gap between the black middle class and their African-American identity. Quote, Blackish follows an upper middle class African-American family led by Andre Dre Johnson and Rainbow Johnson. The show revolves around the family's lives as they juggle several personal and sociopolitical issues. Unquote. One of the episodes featured NFL player turned activist Colin Kaepernick while simultaneously condemning Donald Trump. Another lamented Barack Obama leaving the White House. It is as if the politics of the Evans fused with the material success of the Huxtables. It is that exciting confluence of enjoying the success, similar to the Huxtables, afforded by living in the United States while simultaneously decrying their place in American society, similar to the Evans family. Though the Johnsons materially and physically have achieved a successful life in Washington's type of world, their minds are owned by Du Bois. After the summer of 2020, which saw a series of civil rights protests in most American cities as a result of the death of George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer, it is unquestionably Du Bois's views that prevail. The Black Lives Matter movement, a descendant of Du Bois ethos, enjoys most American support. Today's black conservative movement, which aligns with Washington, features as its greatest advocate, Thomas Sowell, who is 96 years old. Another featured writer, Shelby Steele, is 75. One of the greatest of black conservatives, Walter E. Williams, passed this autumn. And of the younger generation, such as Candace Owens, is known really more for controversial tweets than for intellectual rigor and widespread acceptance and influence. The intellectual side is owned by the likes of Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Kendi, rather than Seoul or the Wall Street Journal's Jason Riley. And sitting behind all of this is the specter of the Obamas. These are the classic exemplars of African Americans who have enjoyed vast prosperity, attending the most prestigious schools, obtaining six-figure jobs, and achieving the most powerful job in the world, only to decry the very system that made all of this possible. As of this writing, the oppressed Obamas have followed each other, one after the other, on the New York Times bestseller list with their autobiographies and enjoying near nine-figure wealth. They are the blackish Johnsons on steroids. Just to get a taste of the cultural dominance of Du Bois and his views, here is Barnes & Noble, a bookseller, providing a descriptor of Du Bois in conjunction with Washington. Quote, He is well known for believing in full civil rights 
and disagreeing with Booker T. Washington's arguments that blacks remain subservient? Unquote. Reading through Washington's works, there is very little advocacy of subservience. Quote, I would permit no man, no matter what his color might be, to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. Unquote. Instead, this is the subtle way that modern culture, including booksellers like Barnes & Noble, subverts the views of African-American conservatives. There is a dichotomy between the real achievements of the Obamas and the reality of black economics. I understand that. The wealth distribution based on racial identity numbers is terrible policy. The fact is, is that the African-American population, 12% of the nation, holds less than 2% of its wealth. Now, what should that number be? Well, progressives and their socialist brethren would argue for 12%, as, as if a magic economic wand can be waved to make that happen. I know that below 2% is problematic. And that is why there is an opportunity for conservatives, for those who believe more in Washington than in Du Bois. Du Bois could never have become county clerk, much less the United States president, so times have changed considerably. The reason for the Obama's promise and the reality for too many African Americans lie in the same issue that was raised by Booker T. Washington. For the first time in years, conservatives made inroads into the black community. In a 2020 article on The Guardian, written by Kenya Evelyn, the article states, quote, As analysts debunk the myth of the black voter monolith, some black Republicans are stepping forward to counter stereotypes and assert a political identity very different from the usual assumption that all black Americans are Democrats, especially in the era of Donald Trump. As one of seven Republicans running for the seat, Mole credits his religious background for his motivations to join a crowded race. Those same traditions are often associated with centrist African-American political leanings. But for black Americans, their conservatism leads them to question whether their political party and preferences match their worldview. I am the typical black person who voted for Barack Obama, but I then voted for Trump. At some point, you think for yourself and say, you know what? I'm not voting this person or this ticket just because my grandma or parents did, unquote. Yet the power of wokeism, something to which Du Bois could readily identify with, continue their march. In a recent column by George Will in the Washington Post, the columnist states, quote, imposing uniformity of thought is the Illinois Board of Education's agenda for culturally responsive teaching and literacy or CRTL. This builds upon Illinois' 2015 law requiring teachers to implement action civics, which means leading their pupils in activism on behalf of various causes. CRTL would make explicit that only woke causes are worthy causes. CRTL would require teachers to, the following jargon sellers standard progressive patois, Assess how their biases affect, how their access tools to mitigate their behavior, racism, sexism, homophobia, unearned privilege, Eurocentrism, etc. Stanley Kurtz of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center notes that CRTL promises 
that its ideology will infuse aspiring teachers' licensing and certification processes. This will be a coercive incentive to adhere to the progressive catechism, including the principle that systemic oppression and racism can always be detected in non-progressive policies. Unquote. What these initiatives, from CRTL to the 1619 Project, are something that Washington understood. I began this piece by suggesting that these concepts are still highly pertinent today through the first two featured quotes. I meant that in the context of the world views, but whereas Washington's idea of race hustlers, once in the person of Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, and today in the guise of BLM's Patrice Cullors, Hannah Jones, and Kendi, is still prevalent. But the widely held belief of systemic oppression does not as quickly stand up to conjecture. Du Bois wrote most of his work in the shadow of Jim Crow, of segregation, and under the progressive Wilson, lynchings, as I noted before, were being conducted at a rate of one per every week. There were no large city African-American mayors, no governors, no representatives, no senators, no cabinet ministers, and certainly no former presidents of African descent in 1909 when Du Bois had founded the NAACP. No African American had large fortunes. They were barred from the major sports leagues. None of them helmed a major motion picture, nor were any directing films. Had there been TV, there would be no blackish, and indeed no black actor starring in 18th century British nobility drama Bridgerton. Shelby Steele had it right, quote, opportunity is around every corner, and in all of this, no one ever stops to say, well, you're unhappy about where minorities are at in American life, and blacks continue to be at the bottom of most socioeconomic measures, unquote. Steele goes on to identify the issue, one that Washington would have supported. Quote, or are you saying I'm a victim and I'm old and the entitlement is inadequate and I need to be given more? And after all, you know, you whites, that racism has been here for four centuries and slavery and so forth. And so it's time for you to give to me. Well, that's an exhausted, fruitless, empty strategy to take. We've been on that path since the 60s, and we are farther behind than we've ever been, and we keep blaming it on racism and blaming it on the police, and I'm exhausted with that, unquote. Booker T. Washington stated, quote, few things can help an individual more than to place responsibility on him and to let him know that you trust him, unquote. And added to that, quote, we should not permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities, unquote. So as we move further into the 21st century, the views of these men still fight it out. But the one salient difference is belief. Washington believed in the promise of America. Du Bois later became a communist and left the United States and became a naturalized citizen of Ghana. Du Bois's legacy consists of the NAACP and a worldview of grievance, victimization, and a lack of empowerment that others are granted. Washington's legacy is this, quote, Tuskegee University is a national, independent, and state-related institution of higher learning located 
in the state of Alabama. The university has distinctive strengths in the sciences, architecture, business, engineering, health, and other professions, all structured on solid foundations in the liberal arts. The university's programs focus on nurturing the development of high-order intellectual and moral qualities among students and stress the connection between education and the highly trained leadership Americans need in general, especially for the workforce of the 21st century and beyond. The results we seek are students whose technical, scientific, and professional prowess has not only been rigorously honed, but also sensitively oriented in ways that produce public-spirited graduates who are both competent and morally committed to public service with integrity and excellence. Unquote. Now, which legacy do you think is more worthy? I hope you have enjoyed this latest edition of the Conservative Historian Podcast. Please look for additional materials at www.conservativehistorian.com. This is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening.